0: The book of Isaiah. So how many of you think today is a great picture of Christmas weather? Yes, good. How many of you had a fantastic Thanksgiving? All right, good. How many of you wish you could switch families after Thanksgiving? Don't raise your hand. Your wife's right next to you. Come on. Good. This, this is, it's a crazy time. I mean, one of the things that we have figured out uh, as a family is that Christmas just keeps coming earlier and earlier every year. Not because time flies. Um, A lot of it is because uh, people are just trying to get the Christmas feels. They're so desperate for the warm, fuzzy feeling of singing White Christmas by the fireplace in your warm pajamas in August. I mean, that's kind of what it's come down to, is we are so desperate trying to get that feeling of what we think Christmas should feel like, that we rush it. And, and, and then honestly, a desperation for the feeling of Christmas really is setting us up for disappointment. It's setting us up for frustration. Frustration is the result of unmet expectations. So if you ever wonder why you find yourself so incredibly frustrated in a moment, just take a deep breath and think through what your expectations of that moment were, and most times what you're gonna find is you are frustrated because your expectations, whether they were, were, were reasonable expectations or not, have gone unmet. And the danger is, by us setting up this perfect holiday scenario, is we're actually setting up a perfect scenario and recipe for frustration. The good news, and what we get to look at today, is that with Advent, with Christmas, with the story of Jesus, There are no unmet expectations. Uh, Advent is a time where we get to look back at what God did and we get to look forward at what God promises that he's going to do. And both of those, whether it's looking back at what God did or looking forward to what he's going to do, both of those have to do with the arrival of Jesus. So either it's we look back at how he showed up in a cradle in the dirt or we look ahead to when he returns as the mighty warrior. Either way, there's the expectation of Jesus Return. So, for those who are in Jesus, there's hope. And it's not hope like cross your fingers and hang on for dear life. It's hope like a confident expectation that will be met. And that leads us to Isaiah chapter 9, which doesn't sound really warm and fuzzy and uplifting right away. So you're going to have to bear with me just for a couple of verses. Isaiah chapter 9, I'll start reading in verse 1, follow along with me. Lord, I pray that you would grab my heart right now. Lord, help me to yield to you the expectations of my heart that have even come into my mind just from talking for the last couple of minutes. God, may I find my hope in Christ even right now as I speak. God, I thank you for your spirit. Thank you for his working even in my life right this second. Now, God, would you, would you do something special here? The prophet Isaiah says this in verse 1, Nevertheless, The gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, which are two northern tribes. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, a light that has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. God, you've enlarged the nation. You have increased its joy. The people... Have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time, and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast. Its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of Armies will accomplish this. So as you read this chunk of the book of Isaiah, there's a couple of things that you, you need to understand. They are not in a good period of time. The Assyrian empire is getting ready to come in and crush Isaiah and his people. It's dark. It's daunting. There's going to be bloodshed. It's going to go very, very... Badly, I mean, there's there's most certainly going to be an overthrow, or at least most people thought. And so all of these horrible things are happening. But when you read these verses, what you find is the prophet Isaiah speaking as if all of these good things are a done deal. It's called the prophetic perfect. The the, the prophet Isaiah is speaking in the past tense, this is good, it is done, because in his eyes, when God says it, it's done, so he's just going to live like it. And wouldn't we be better off if we would do that? So as the prophet speaks, he says in verse 1, the gloom of the humiliation of the people of Israel will no longer be there. Instead, there's going to be honor coming from Galilee. Let me step out to the side here just for a second. <laughs> I was telling Jeremy this before the service started. The struggle that I'm going to have is actually for the next four weeks we're going to unpack Isaiah 9:6 and the names that are listed there. And so there's a lot of things that I want to reserve for week 3 and 4 that actually I really would rather say today. But if I say them all today... Well, week three and four are going to be real short. So I've got to be very careful, but I'll just say this. Galilee uh, was the northern city, northern town that used to get wiped out when countries would come from the north to attack Jerusalem. They would besiege Jerusalem, and on their way of retreat most often, they would go back through Galilee, and there's nothing worse than an a, a, a invading army. The only thing worse than an invading army is a retreating army when it comes to their anger and their frustration and their aggression. And so as Galilee might rebuild itself back up, as the armies would retreat, they would tear it all down again and rape and, and, and ravage and, and, and pillage the entire area. And so, so now it's saying Galilee will no longer be a place of bad news where it has all these bad things happen. Now goodness is gonna come from Galilee. Verse two, he says, in darkness, forget the darkness, now there's a great light. Verse three, the people are celebrating and rejoicing like that time of year when the harvest comes in and there's a reason to celebrate and rejoice. Verse 4, the the oppressive one is no more. Verse 5, the the boots of the enemies, the uniforms of the soldiers are burned as fuel for the fire. Why? Because those are no longer needed. War's done. So how do those things happen? How are those expectations that Isaiah lists out there met? It's found in verse 6. For a child will be born for us. The Son will be given to us. Like what Mike said, what we we got to see in the manger is the culmination of the promise that God made to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. It's the promise to Adam and Eve. It's called the Proto-Evangelion. It's the first proclamation of the gospel. And, and, And in a nutshell, it's God saying, someday evil will be crushed. And with the lowly whimper of a baby, the death knell was rung. In this child, the fears of all the people are going to collide with the hope that God's got this. That's what we have. Um, said and sang in that song O Little Town of Bethlehem the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight the hopes and the fears it's hard to have both of those things but those both are common to all humanity and every day it seems different. So which one's going to win out? Am I going to have more hope today than fear, or am I going to have more fear today than, than hope? But on that day when, when Bethlehem became the birthplace of the child that was promised in, in Genesis chapter three, verse 16, when Bethlehem became the birthplace of the child that was promised in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, when, when, when Bethlehem became the, the, the birthplace of the child that was promised here in our text, in Genesis uh, um, Isaiah 9. Verse 6, what happened in that moment is the hopes and the fears of all of history met. And I promise, the hopes won out. So that gets us to the one name that we're supposed to be speaking of this morning, and it's this, Wonderful Counselor. This child that is coming, this one that is going to be born, is called Wonderful Counselor. So in order to gain an understanding of what a wonderful counselor is, what I did was I asked a number of our counselors here at Uniontown, so what makes a good counselor? And so I got a number of their responses, and so I kind of massaged all the answers and, and, and put the, grouped them together and kind of said, okay, this is going to be the outline for this morning, and so if you don't like it, you can blame the counseling team. Wonderful counselor. What makes a counselor wonderful? Well, I think the first thing that makes a counselor wonderful, and this one's free, so just bear with me, is that the counselor is direct. The counselor is direct. Now, um, there's no better illustration of that than a, a video clip that I saw years and years and years ago, and so you have to forgive me, there's no updated HD version of it, so this might be a little blurry, a little choppy, and it's a picture of a young woman who is going to see her counselor about a very specific issue, and he's going to offer for her very direct counsel. Here we go. Go
1: Go Well tell, what? Me, tell me about the problem that you wish to address. Oh, OK. Uh, well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. <laughs> I just I start thinking about being buried alive, and I begin to panic.: Has, has, has anyone ever ever tried to, to bury you alive in a box? no no but truly thinking about it does make my life horrible i mean i can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house anything boxy <laughs> so what what you're saying is you're are uh, you're claustrophobic uh yes yes that's it <laughs> all right well uh, let's go catherine i'm uh... I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I, I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in, into your life. Well, shall I uh, write them down? Well, it, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most, we find most people can, uh, can remember them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You ready? Yes. Okay, here, here there. are. it! Stop it! <laughs> Stop it? Yes. S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. So, what are you saying? <laughs> you, you know, it's funny. I, I I say two simple words, and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you're saying. I mean, this, you know, this is not Yiddish, Catherine. This is English. <laughs> stop it. So, I should just stop it. There you go. I mean, you... you, you you don't want to go through life being scared of being buried alive in a box, do you? I mean, that sounds, sounds frightening. Yes. Then stop it! But I can't. I mean, it's been with me no, since no, no, childhood. No, no, no. We, no, we, we don't go there. Just, just stop. It. So I should just stop being afraid of being buried alive in a box? You got it. Good go. Well, it's only been... It's only been three minutes, so that will be um, $3. Uh, I, I only have a five, so... Well, I, I, don't, I don't
0: make change. <laughs> so, anybody been to that counselor? And, and it is fair if you were to say, yes, it's my father. Seems to be a way Dad counsels. Now, one of the answers that was given about what makes a good counselor is this, it's a person who can relate to you. A person who can develop rapport with you. I mean, there's very little that's worse than, than having somebody who's not relationally involved with you try to give you counsel, right? So you go to the grocery store, moms, and you're exhausted. And little Johnny, age three, and Amanda, age five, are just tearing the place up, and somebody probably with really good intentions comes alongside you and says, you know, if you would just, now it really doesn't matter what they say after that, does it? If, they, if, I, would, if, I, if I would just what? I just, I would hit you with my purse? I mean, what? if I would just, if I, I mean, you're messing with a person who's on the edge when you do something like that, but you have no relational involvement with them. So you, you need to build rapport with them, or, or maybe even better, or worse, it's probably worse, is someone who's got no shared experience with you trying to give you advice, right? So I don't know how many of you, uh, Stephanie and I got married very young. I was 21, she was 20. Uh, we still had friends who were in college, uh, single friends who didn't get married to their late 20s, and those single friends, I mean, it is an amazing blessing that we were given, uh, were masters at marriage. Nothing better than a person who's never been married looking me in the eye and giving me marriage advice. And, and nothing better than a person who's never had a child telling you how you should raise your children. It's Nothing worse than a person who has never experienced loss. To look at somebody and say, just get over it. All things work together for good. See, the best counseling comes out of shared experience. 2 Corinthians 1 is an amazing uh, verse. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 4 it says that God comforts us in our affliction so that we are able to comfort those who are in their affliction through the comfort that we have received from God himself. So as God ministers to our soul in the midst of our affliction, we are able then to reach to other people who are going through affliction and serve and minister to them because we have a shared experience. So if Jesus is going to be the one to counsel you, if Jesus is this child that Isaiah 9 is talking about, if Jesus is a wonderful counselor, then the question you need to ask is, can Jesus relate to what you're going through? Can Jesus relate to what you are going through? Have you ever been betrayed? Jesus asks. Have you ever been alone? How about wrongly accused? Gossiped about? You experience physical pain? Are you afraid? Have you experienced loss? See, all of those things Jesus has been through. He's experienced every single one of them. And that's why Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 tells us we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He gets it. He experienced it. He experienced even more than that. He also experienced the very temptation that you and I experience every day. Yet the difference is he never sinned. So does Jesus understand Can Jesus relate to us? The answer is most definitely yes. Another picture of a good counselor is a person who listens and who shows care and love for the person who's in need. You don't ever want to go to a counselor and have them check out and be on their phones thumbing through Instagram while you're pouring your soul out to them right? That's one of the most disrespectful things somebody could do to you, and it's, it's hurtful, and it's, it's painful. And, and, and what, what Isaiah is saying is this wonderful counselor, this wonderful counselor is going to listen to the real problems because he cares about the real problems. It's interesting that, that, that Jesus, as you look through the Gospels, you don't see him uh, running and jumping through the hoops for things that weren't real problems or things that weren't motivated out of reality. What I mean is this, I'm working through the Gospels right now and I'm actually having a a great time unpacking the pictures of Jesus acting in an un-Jesus-like manner. You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about the the time where, where Jesus is healing so many people and it's going so well And he goes to bed, and the next morning he wakes up before his disciples wake up, and he he goes to the hill so he can spend time with his father, so he can refocus, he can rest his soul, he can refresh, he can invest in Sabbath. And as he's there, his disciples come looking for him. It says they're hunting for him. The word in the Greek for hunting is used, and it means with the intent to do harm. I take from that the disciples weren't very happy that they had to search the hillsides trying to find Jesus. And when they finally find Jesus alone in prayer, their response to him is, what are you doing here doing nothing? All of these people are down there ready to be healed. This is one of those greatest political moments we have been waiting for. It's all rising up. It's all about to go in our favor. Why are you disappearing? Let's get back down there. Let's heal some more. And Jesus says, let's go to another town. That doesn't seem to be what Jesus would want to do, but he says, no, the most important thing is that I move on and share this message of good news. Another good picture of it is Jesus is accumulating disciples, right? And somebody comes to him and says, I want to follow you. I want to go with you, but, but my dad died. So let me go home and bury my dad and then I'll follow you. And Jesus is like, Psh, let the dead bury their own dead and keeps walking. Well, that doesn't seem very Christ-like. I'm going to follow you, Jesus, but first I want to go home and say bye to my mama. No, 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 no. If you put your hand on the plow, you don't get to look back, so you just leave. You're not worthy of being one of my disciples. So you see these moments where people are trying to challenge or invest or, 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 or interrupt what it is that Jesus is doing, and each time he's like, no, nope, no, nope, no. Nope. But then you get to this moment where Jesus is walking through a throng of people. It's like being in the lobby in between services when you just need a cup of coffee. The throngs of people, and they're being jostled about, and there's people everywhere, and Jesus and his disciples are making their way through the crowd, and all of a sudden, he stops dead in his tracks. Somebody touched me. You think? And the disciples are like, of course somebody touched you. There's so many people here. He says, no, no, no. Somebody touched me. They're in need. And you know, the woman with the issue of blood had reached out, hoping that in some way God would use Jesus to heal her. See, he listens, he's in tune with people, he understands which ones are in it for themselves and which ones are in true need. And that's why he, that Hebrews 4 passage goes on, verse 16. So then let's approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we can receive mercy and grace to help us in time of need. The wonderful counselor will listen. He will respond with what's needed. And what's needed most is mercy and grace. Another picture of a good counselor is a person who has a plan of action person who has a, a plan of action. It may not be right away, but, but after building a relationship, relationship, after listening, after being caring and concerned for the well-being of the person who they are counseling, that plan of action will not look like, okay, let's meet again next week. Okay, let's meet again next week. It's, it's more than that. It's, it's deeper than that. And much like the wonderful counselor, his plan of action has been in effect since the very foundation of the world. Do you understand that that from before man was created, God determined his son would die. And yet he still created man. See, there's a a plan that has been in place. He was here to accomplish his father's plan. He told his mom that in Luke chapter 2 when mom Mary and dad Joseph lost their 12-year-old child. Have you ever lost your 12-year-old child? Okay, that that was kind of what I expected. Partly because not a lot of us lose 12-year-old children. The other part is because the people who would lose a 12-year-old child are mostly male. And if they lost their 12-year-old child for any length of time, there is no way they've confessed it to their wife at this point. So I did not expect a lot of hands to go up. No, you didn't lose your 12-year-old child. Who loses their 12-year-old child? But Mary and Joseph lose their 12-year-old child. They go to the temple, and there Jesus is sitting with the teachers of the law when Mary seems concerned, he says to her, well, didn't you know? I'm supposed to be about my father's business, the plan that's been in place for all these years. He came to set people free. He came to ransom the captives. Don't don't overlook what the, the phrase ransom the captives means. To ransom the captives means to pay the price that was necessary so that slaves could live a real life, not a life marked by enslavement. That plan was to offer people life, to to offer people the actual way to the Father because there is no other way. It's just in Him. Another important aspect of being a good counselor is this they're a person who sees lives changed around them. A person who sees lives changed around them. Did Jesus change any lives? I mean, think about it, the men that he called to be his disciples, most were fishermen, blue-collar men sitting on the docks, mending their nets, talking about, I guess football wasn't around at that point, but on that level, probably not unpacking the deepest philosophical things of the day, And people would just walk by them, ignoring them because, yeah, they're dock workers, that's all. And Jesus took those men, those blue-collar fishermen, and he made them missionaries who spread the gospel, and it went so far that the book of Acts says these are the men who are responsible for turning the world upside down. Lives changed. What about the Samaritan woman? Just talked about her again last week or the week before. Talking about the the, the lady who was in the midst of relational nightmares, five previous husbands living with the, the sixth guy. Nobody's going to listen to her. She's lost all of her reputation. But then, after an interaction with Jesus, she becomes the mouthpiece of the gospel to other Samaritans who lived in her town, and many of whom believed because of her testimony. Changed lives? How about a little man named Zacchaeus? hated tax collector in a practice that was known for cheating people that was the norm of the day to take not just a little off the top but a lot off the top but after spending time with Jesus he confessed to Jesus I am guilty of stealing from these people and not only will I repay them I will repay them with interest that's not the heart of a tax collector that's the heart of a person who's had a collision with Jesus How about Mary Magdalene? Mary Magdalene, just to set the record straight, not a prostitute. Mary Magdalene was not a prostitute. That that started in the late 500s with a fellow named Pope Gregory. And what he did is he read the end of Luke chapter 7 and he bled it into the beginning of Luke chapter 8. And he took the story at the end of Luke 7 about the the prostitute and he blended it together with Mary Magdalene at the beginning of Luke 8 and said, oh, that must be who Luke is talking about. That's not the case. However... She was a woman who was possessed with seven demons. Not the most effective mouthpiece of the gospel, but then healed by Jesus, became a part of his ministry abroad, and became one of the primary witnesses of the resurrection. Lives changed. Gadarian demoniac. People had written the fellow off, sent him up to the graveyard so he's homeless and isolated because they could not figure out for the life of them how to fix him. He was not in his right mind. He was so desperate and in anguish that he would scream at the top of his lungs every night, and the townspeople most certainly would have heard him. Remember, that's the man that we just can't fix. Jesus pulls up, literally in a boat, not a car, (laughs) meets the Gatorian demoniac, Casts out the legion of demons, and then suddenly that man, who for all those years, family, friends, loved ones, could do nothing to control him. After all this time, Jesus simply steps in, changes his life, and now he sits clothed in his right mind. It's interesting, it's another situation where Jesus doesn't really answer the way we expect him to answer. Because the demoniac approaches, Jesus says, please let me be with you, which is the terminology that's used in the book of Mark for being a disciple. So the, the demoniac saying, you've healed me. This is wonderful, my life has been changed. Let me, let me be your disciple. Let me travel with you. Let me be with you. And Jesus says, no. No, instead I want you to go home to all your family and friends and tell them what Jesus has done for you. And it says that the ten cities They were in that area, they were amazed when the visual story of who Jesus is was presented to them in this now healed man. You want to talk about a wonderful counselor? People left his presence different. I think it's important for us to know that even as a wonderful counselor, Jesus doesn't take away our problems right away. But his presence will never leave us. And his presence is more valuable than any solution to any of our problems. So I don't know. This is, I'm just going to play the odds on this one, all right? Um, some of you are sitting here this morning because it's Christmas. This is the month you promised Mom you'd go to church. We welcome you. Some of you are here because it's the Sunday after Thanksgiving. And it was a little rugged at home. And you're hoping that God can help your family. You're hoping that God can fix your marriage. You might be hoping that that God can help you focus your career a little bit better. So you're hoping to have this interaction with the wonderful counselor who'll change those things, but that's a little bit like a kid sitting next to you saying, okay, now listen, if a nuclear bomb went off right next to me, would I be hot? That's kind of missing the point, isn't it? I mean, if a nuclear bomb goes off next to you, your personal temperature becomes a little bit irrelevant. Yeah, God can help you with your problem. But he's a nuclear bomb. And in his presence, he gives you something far greater than the answers to those problems. He gives you himself. I know it doesn't take away all your problems, but it does change how you go through them. And I can live every day with the assurance that the wonderful counselor is my shepherd. And I shall not want. That he leads me beside still waters. That he makes me lie down in green pastures. That he can restore my soul. And even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't have to fear. Because he is with me. His rod, his staff, they comfort me. My cup just overflows. Because of his presence, I can know that surely, most certainly, goodness and mercy Will accompany me all the days of my life. And I'll dwell in his presence forever. That's the wonderful counselor. He's with us. He came to forgive us, to bring us into his kingdom. He came to reconcile us to God, to adopt us, to make us his own. Because you and I were separated from God in our sin. We were helpless and powerless to do anything about that separation on our own. The story of Advent is that God showed up. At just the right time, Jesus came and he died in our place, making salvation available to any and to all who call on his name. And so today, If you've not done that, then I'm going to encourage you in the quietness of your seat that will happen in just a few moments that you call on his name. And if you have done that, then today we celebrate that. And I'm going to be honest with you. We don't observe the Lord's Supper. We don't take communion together very often and celebrate it. We should. We should. It's an aspect of communion that we miss out on. We should be celebrating. We take this intentional time to to stop, to, to reflect on the picture that Jesus has left for us, and we celebrate with joy what it is that he did for us. We celebrate for joy what it is that he continues to do for us. We have hope. And we have confidence. And because of Jesus, we have the ability to have life full and free, because Jesus gave us his life. So in a moment, I'm going to invite you, after I pray, to leave your seats. If you would leave out the right side of the aisle, make your way up, get the elements, and return to your seats, kind of doing the you from your seats there. Return to your seats, and, and in a few moments, as people receive their elements, I'm going to encourage you. Just take a few moments to celebrate in your heart what it is that Jesus has done for you. Pray with the people next to you. Pray by yourself. Open up his word. Read through Isaiah 53. And see what it is that Christ accomplished for us. After everyone has received their elements, we will take communion together. So, would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for the wonderful hope we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you for our wonderful counselor. (laughs) Thank you that our counselor is present with us, that he'll never leave us, he'll never forsake us, he'll never abandon us. Thank you for the hope that we have. Thank you for the confidence that we have. Thank you for the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. It's all because he willingly laid down his life for us. So Lord, today as we observe communion together, I ask, that our observance will be marked with celebration and with joy. Lord, may we be a grateful people. And may we remember clearly what it is that Jesus Christ did for us. It's in his good name I pray. Amen.